This episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design's DaVinci Resolve software combines professional offline and online editing, color correction, audio post-production, and now visual effects all in one software tool. The standard for high-end post-production, DaVinci Resolve is used for finishing more Hollywood feature films, episodic television programming, and TV commercials than any other software. It is also brought to you by the Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio, the revolutionary new all-in-one podcasting solution from Rode Microphones. To get in the running to win a complete podcasting setup, including a Roadcaster Pro and all-new Rode PodMic, head to giveaway.roadcaster.com and list the eight features of the Roadcaster Pro in the same order as the Rode team. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. The documentary cinematographer is a special kind of cinematographer. Whereas in narrative, the role is more defined, DPs of the more truthful persuasion may find themselves piling on more hats than their fiction-bound counterparts. Take it from David Paul Jacobson of Ask Dr. Ruth, and Christy Toll of Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, two Sundance-caliber cinematographers who join us on today's show. Both of their projects revolve around strong women. Ask Dr. Ruth chronicles the incredible life of Dr. Ruth Wertheimer, a Holocaust survivor, former soldier, immigrant, and two-time divorcee who became the world's most influential sex therapist. Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, memorializes the former journalist who made a name for herself as a rough-talking six-foot Texan who was quick to expose corruption wherever she found it. Together in this roundtable, we talk about how to grab the most effective B-roll, the perfect kits for the job, and not overstepping boundaries with directors and editors as you must also direct and edit yourself. Enjoy. Hey guys, I'm John Fusco, and I'm here today uh, doing a sort of documentary DP roundtable, as I've uh, labeled it. And I'm actually going to let you guys introduce yourselves so the audience can uh, become familiar with your voice and also your project that you're here at Sundance with. First of all, fake news, it's more of a triangle. It's more of a triangle. There's only three of us there's, in the there's room. There's three of us. Well, there's a fourth, but she's she won't be mentioned. And I'm also not really... <laughs> Uh, would you like to take us away? Uh, sure. I'm Christy Tully. I'm here at Sundance. Um, I shot the documentary Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. Uh, my name is David Jacobson. Uh, I'm a cinematographer who shot the film Ask Dr. Ruth. And that's it. Great. So I guess my first question is going to be, you know, you're, you're both DPs by trade. Um, but for a documentary, I, I get the sense that you're doing a lot more than just being a DP. Um, can you talk about some of the other roles you play as a documentary DP or cinematographer? Um, yeah, I think a, a big part of doing documentaries, maybe over narrative features and things like that, uh, is the relationships that are sensitive and precarious that you need to maintain to, you know, keep people comfortable and that whole thing, but without getting too involved that you might be affecting the performances or anything. So, you know, for Dr. Ruth, she's like a real ham and she always wants to engage with everyone around her. So it was always a game. I love her and I just, all I want to do is talk to her. But part of my job was also like keeping her focused and um, trying to get the shots out and, and, move her around and you know as a documentarian dp you're also kind of directing occasionally as well yeah i was gonna ask where, where does that line sort of drawn between the dp and the director when you're trying to sort of focus a subject or um keep a subject to a certain narrative i guess 
Um, it is a very fuzzy line that I don't think is ever clearly drawn. Um, I think every situation is different. And because also, in this case, Ryan White, the director, um, was also one of the shooters. You know, he was always running with a, a very stripped down Canon um, camera. So like, you know, he was sometimes doing my job and I was sometimes doing his job and, and different situations demanded, you know, more or less of, of the other person's input. How about you, Christy? What do you um, think? Yeah, that's that's a great question because on, you know, it's so interesting because on documentaries, um, for me personally, I'm always working with, you know, it's, sometimes it's just me and a director or me and a producer out running around. And, you know, documentaries take so long to shoot. Like over this one, for example, Molly Ivins was shot over like six years. Um, so you just have to break down. Sometimes it's like only you. Sometimes it's only the director. Sometimes it's both of you. But for me, I find that, I um, I think in the field, I think the rules are completely fuzzy and the director kind of like becomes the director in post because they make all the decisions. But but it has to be a fuzzy line because sometimes it makes sense, especially with Fly on the Wall, for me to go in with a shotgun mic and a lob and just like be with people for for an extended period of time so that, you know, it's important that they trust me, get to know me and can, um, you know, and have private moments with me. You become kind of like a confidant with them. Um, and one other person in the room changes it, and then a third person in the room completely changes everything. Um, so you really are, you know, really a creator in the field, and then and then and then miraculously it goes away in post, and, and the movie becomes, you know, solely the directors or the directors and the editors and the team. So it's a really you kind of have to like release the film at the end to to the to the filmmakers and it's completely different you know it's like on commercials there's like a group of people who've said so many words about the 30 seconds before even the director gets on board and then they have like a lot of more words and when you get to set you really just have to, you know, execute all their words that they've already said. So it's like the exact opposite. Yeah, it's. I was wondering actually, you know, how do you uh, prep as a uh, DP for a documentary compared to like prepping as a narrative? Is it more just like, you know, there's a ton of prep that goes in beforehand with a narrative when you go into a documentary situation? Are you sort of just more running with the punches or? I feel like there's a lot of, I mean, for me, um, there's a lot of prep that goes into documentary because the more you can, the more you can talk with the director, or the producers about the uh, about the storyline and the tone and the feel, you can set yourself up to have, um, say, a lot of rules, visual rules mm. that you can follow. Because sometimes you're going to walk in and you have zero time to do anything, and if you can have some rules in your head about, you know, maybe at the beginning of the film, you're shooting wider, closer, and you slowly get further away with tighter lenses, or maybe at the beginning of the film, you're shooting with a lot of depth of field, and it slowly narrows. Like, I can build in some some arcs that help tell a story visually that there's no way you could do it. And, you know, once you get to the field, you're, you're just um, sometimes have to follow the puck, as they say, you know? So as long as you're set up, you, you can still create a tone and a feel. If you don't have those conversations at the onset, then you're just like running around with no, without any idea what the hell's going on. You know what I mean? And for, for Ruth and for almost every documentary I work on, there's always some conversations happening. Um, sometimes I wish it was more, um, but, but there's always a discussion and it's often because of the nature of sort of verite shooting. It's a lot of lens conversations. It's a lot of like proximity conversations. 
Um, and then lighting is like very secondary and it's sort of whenever you can, you can or whatever. I mean, every project's different in that way. But um, with with Ruth, like my biggest consideration, and I don't, I don't know if you've been through this before, but um, with a lot of documentaries, uh, you know, they're like, we're going to shoot for like a week and see what happens. And then we're going to maybe then try to get funding for the rest of the project or whatever. So sometimes you're going out with like nothing or very little, super stripped down, and then you kind of see what happens after that. And then sometimes it just works and you just stick with whatever you're doing. You know, with Ruth, we were, they were like, oh, she's, we have this opportunity. The deal's not totally done. We don't have financing yet. But she's like, you can come to Switzerland and meet my family, and then we can go to Israel together. And we were like, fuck yeah. Wow. So that, that came that. first. That was the very first thing we did. Interesting. The That's first day I met her was on my birthday in Switzerland. And <laughs> I was on, I was, it was my birthday, and I was on an airplane. I was like, fuck, this sucks. And then I met Dr. <laughs> Ruth, and I'm like, she's great. You know, this is awesome. And then we spent, you know, 10 days with her. And uh, honestly, the only piece of gear that I was like, we need this piece of gear was a, it was an easy rig because she's four feet, seven inches tall. Yeah. So I needed to always be at her, you know, I wanted to be at her eye level or below her eye level whenever possible. And, um, I really wanted to be like wide and close to her. So to achieve that, I was like, we need the serene arm thing and we need the easy rig. And that's the only thing I'm asking you guys for. Everything else will just pull from my kit and whatever. Um, and, and that's pretty much how we shot the whole movie Wow! in the end. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So you almost have like this entry point, uh, that could or could not end up actually making the film and, but then you can have that footage later to actually use in the documentary, it seems yeah. and inform the style of the documentary in a way. So it's almost like you have a, uh, a, a lookbook, um, <laughs> right in front of you physically yeah you. begrudgingly so yeah. i mean I, I was like i want to spend more time i want to figure out the look i wanted but we just sort of hit the ground running and that was that was it you know so a lot of decisions were made in the moment but always talking to the director and always communicating you know before the day starts after the day let's let's do a little assessment of how the day went and talk about it and do something differently next time hmm. but a lot of it at least for me it's very with docs it's very instinctual and it's very kind of developing style as opposed to like mm. already established because mm -hmm. you kind of have to know who you're dealing with mm. on some level. You does, know? does the subject sort of end up informing the style in that sense? Big time. I mean, Dr. Ruth deserves director credit for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, she was, and probably cinematographer as well. I mean, she's like very much aware of everything uh, in her own way and has a viewpoint and uh, she knows how to get her own way for sure. Mm. For, and it's a good thing with her. It's a good thing mm. with others. Maybe not so much, but you know, so Christy, what does that like this discussion that he's talking about beforehand? Like, what would that ideal discussion uh, sound like to you about like pre-production, and what, what what would be the things that you would most need to cover? I guess before you get out into the field. Um, well, like I said, you know, like I said before, like you know, I we usually I usually try to go over. Um, they tell me what the documentary is about, and then I and I always say like, but what are you trying to say? And then that usually informs everything else. Like, for me. I feel like if they can tell me if we can if we can commit or discuss the creative, I feel like all technical decisions just come from there. Mm -hmm. So instead of instead of starting with like, I have this package, so we should use it. We talk about you know, um, 
I know it's about this, but what are you trying to say? And that usually gives me the tone of a film that's different than what the film's about. And, and that's what I feel cinematography of a documentary really is. It's how to, how to make the people feel something without any words, which, of course, documentary is a lot of words. So for me, if I could tell the story without words, then, then I've done my job. Um, and, you know, when, when reality sh TV started coming out, I had a long talk with um, an old professor of mine from SUNY Purchase. She was an editor for a long time about this idea of neutral footage. Like all of a sudden, editors were becoming directors of TV shows because they would just go out and shoot all this neutral footage. They're just like running around shooting people and then they have to figure out a story later. Right. And I feel like that is the separation between documentaries and reality shows is that if you can never sh well sometimes you just have to shoot what you're shooting but if you c if you have in your mind what the story's about i'll know whether to include the glass of water or not on this table hmm. or i'll know to include the flickery light i mean that's a dramatic example but you just start to intuitively see things that you want to include in the frame that helps tell the story that hmm. makes it not so neutral hmm. it's funny that you bring up this whole like uh you know finding the, the reality tv becomes a part of the neutral or is, is based off neutral footage and sort of finding the story within the edit is there anything you can do as a DP to help the editor later on? Like, are you having conversations with the editor uh, prior to the shoot or like during the shoot? Or are you thinking about how this is going to look in the end? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it depends. It's like I kind of you have to kind of read the room or read the production. And, and if I think that the editor is going to have a lot of creative control over how the film's going to be, I'll actually will go to them directly and I'll say, what kind of B-roll do you like? Because mm. I'll just get what you like. Because I could shoot and waste like, a, you know, all my energy shooting on the stuff that I really like, but if they're not going to use it. So I try to like take what they really like and I try to take what the director's trying to say with the film and I try to think about while we're out in the field, what, what will get used and what will help tell the story of what they're trying to say. Mm. And also, you know, tell me like what kind, what time of day to make sure I'm not doing it. Or, or if it's, I'm like, oh, it's cloudy, I got to get outside. Or, oh, it's raining, let me go out. Or, or I'm only going to shoot in the sun if I have a chance for B-roll. Or I'm going to get up before everybody and shoot at night. Like all those decisions that, that uh, if you just have them, for me, it's like if I can get it all in the back of my head, I can just execute them in the field without having to. I mean, the director often I'm, gets really... Um, they, they have to stare they have to stare into people's eyes and 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 absorb a lot of their energy all day and it's really exhausting so anything I can do to not ask them questions once we get in the field I feel is very helpful I mean do you feel that David? Uh, de definitely <laughs> yes I agree uh, <laughs> well I think a big thing is um, editing myself like not shooting be fighting against that urge to overshoot hmm. um, there's something I've learned very early on that if you shoot something, there's a good chance they're going to use it. So right. you might not want it in the movie. Mm -hmm. And and that happens to me all the time. And I'm like, well, oh, this shot's fine. We just need it right now. I'm just going to shoot it. I'm like, no, no, don't do that. Like, if you can avoid that, you're always weighing what's most practical in this situation. Like, do I have time to do this? Should I come back and get it? Is the light going to be better in three hours? And we're going to be able to drive back and waste the time to do it. Like, you're considering all those things. And at some point... You're always making sacrifices. So a big part of what, you know, I'm doing is, is sort of gauging like what shots are worth it and what's not worth it. Um, but that's also more covering my ass than it is the editor. But the, for at least the editor, uh, DP relationship, um, I don't know when I started out, uh, I got this compliment 
from an editor that I don't think was deserved. But uh, at the time, at least, maybe I've earned it now. But he said, I think you shoot with your ears. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting way to think about things. And maybe I just do that. Like, I'm always listening and trying to follow what I'm hearing as much as what I'm seeing. So um, that really informs often what the story is and like whatever's going on. You know, it's, it's following the sound, not just like the action of the person. And I think you end up being way more um, useful as a shooter in those situations. Uh, and you don't necessarily waste as much time maybe like pointing the camera at something that's not, not very beneficial, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you got, I don't know if this is a, like a taboo thing for DPs to uh, talk about, but does yes. each like DP have a sort of secret B roll strategy? Like, do you guys have your own like things that you find yourself coming back to again and again for B roll that you think like are very effective in a documentary piece? Hmm. And can you share them with us? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I do. I try to. I try to let the. Um, I try to let the documentary, you know, inform it. You know, I, I tend to tweak out on trees a lot <laughs> when I'm out in the field, but that's Love just... Love trees. But that's just my own... <laughs> trees uh, are the beautiful, shit. yeah. I mean, they may or may not make it in, but I'm, like, constantly, like, staring up into backlit leaves, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But that's not to do with anything, usually with the film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I never try to think of B-roll and A-roll or whatever. I don't actually delineate those two. Mm. Um but at the same time, like your your considerations visually when you're shooting B-roll is more just it's more like if I was on like mushrooms right now, what would be interesting about this <laughs> image? Like that's more what I'm doing because there's not a lot of storytelling going on. Sometimes there is when you're when your quote unquote B-roll can serve the story mm-hmm. in a way that's not just establishing or something. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. You know, you can tell a little like you can you introduce a pan or something that actually tells a bit of the story or if you plan something like a match cut with like the b-roll and you know the person you're filming if you can plan those things that's like the that's the cool thing yeah it seems like if you if that is included in the conversation that we were talking about like prior to uh where you you really have the central story down then you can actually like plan those b shots uh b-roll shots um, accordingly and like see how the b-roll will help uh, like tell your story that you're that's trying to right tell. you know I'm, I'm i just came back from the shoot in florida and doing like a true crimes murder story right now mm, and so uh who, and did, who did it and it's the killer <laughs> i can't say i can't film anymore <laughs> um so so I, so it's you know it's this kind of affluent uh south florida town with some interesting characters in it. So, you know, I was just shooting some shots while the director was um, doing something. So I was shooting palm trees, but I, you know, I shot the palm tree with like the one dead leaf hanging off, like mm. those kind of things. It's like all the beautiful things I try to like put something messed up in the frame too, mm. you know, and that's that's like in the back of my head. I'm not thinking about it, but when I go to do it, I'm like, oh yeah, let me get the messed up part too of, yeah. of the pretty image because that subconscious not subconscious some yeah, foreshadowing it's a, sort of yeah. it subconsciously tells the story right. that we're in a beautiful place with a little death um i just want to add to that that i um i've also somehow in my career become like a, a recreations guy okay <laughs> which is like ultimate b-roll you know yeah, yeah, that's yeah. b-roll slash turning into a-roll turning back into b-roll like it's such a weird world mm. that's very cliched and very difficult to sort of like edge out something unique in um and so that's a game I've had to play a lot. I, I got like one of the first big projects I ever worked on was the Jinx. And that was like 
doing the recreations for that was insane. Yeah. Um, but th- that to me was like, that's B-roll taken to another level to me. Because what we did with that was we, we literally rebuilt two um, uh, homes, two spaces where murders took place. Yeah. And we used all the archival f- uh, photographs, all the police photos to recreate the space exactly. That's amazing. So in doing that, we were able to like really bring the audience into the space as truly recreated as humanly possible. Um, and I think that goes a little further than like just putting an actor in a, in a scene and having them like move around and like cutting their face out. Yeah, that was which, really which effective. We did a lot too. You guys did a great job. Thank you. We tried. I mean, you know, it was, it was hard. And, and the benefit of that shoot, uh, I, I'm sure you can attest to this. A lot of documentaries um, are sort of bankrolled by people like the filmmakers themselves were just like independently wealthy or something. And, um, you know, Andrew Jarecki, great filmmaker, also a very wealthy man. So as a result of uh, the B-roll is a very difficult thing to finesse. And so we we would, um, basically do a shoot for like four or five days. Um, all the pre-pro everything, do it very traditionally like a film shoot. And then if the footage didn't work, we'd like reshoot it. So we did that a number of times and, and that was very, very, beneficial to yeah. us yeah. Uh, and not and not everybody has that luxury you know That's what I mean great. so so we were very lucky and you know I can't stress enough when you shoot that b-roll stuff it's like you gotta really have a plan going in because it takes a lot of finessing to like find what works I would say this podcast is brought to you by the Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio the revolutionary all-in-one podcasting solution from Rode Microphones with its four Class A microphone inputs, eight sound pads to trigger music and effects, the ability to stream phone calls seamlessly, Bluetooth and USB connectivity for easy audio streaming, and so much more, it is truly professional podcasting made easy. Simply plug in your microphone, turn up your faders, and hit record. To get in the running to win a complete Rode podcasting setup, head to giveaway.rodecaster.com and list the eight features of the Rodecaster Pro in the same order as the Rodecaster team. This podcast is also brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design has grown rapidly to become one of the world's leading innovators and manufacturers of creative video technology. The company's philosophy is refreshing and simple, to help true creativity blossom by allowing the highest quality video to be affordable to everyone. Its products include the world's highest quality video editing products, digital film cameras, color correctors, live production switchers, and a host of other hardware for the feature film, post-production, and television broadcast industries. The Pocket Cinema Camera 4K is Blackmagic Design's new next-generation 4K handheld camera. It comes with dual native ISO with an amazing up to 25,600 ISO for incredible light performance, a full four-thirds HDR sensor, and 13 stops of dynamic range. It also comes with both ProRes or RAW recording to internal SD UHS-2 and CFAS cards, or even external USB-C drives, eliminating the need for expensive external recorders. So on the complete opposite side of those uh, uh, big money projects, if you were to make a like a super micro budget documentary, um, getting into like sort of the gear aspect of it, uh, what sort of kit would you like? What's the most uh, effective kit for a micro budget documentary for you know emerging filmmakers or uh, people who are just trying to get like a doc short or a you know doc out there? I mean, these days, like you can do anything with anything, yeah. I think. But um, I, I have, uh, you know, I bought the C300 when it first came out. Um, I had been using like 5Ds for commercials and stuff. And that was like a real game changer just visually. You know, I think it really brought cinematography 
in like reality into this sort of the, it brought those two things together um not that like cinematographers of, of yesteryear weren't incredible it just it just elevated the form a little bit because you can do so much more in smaller packages mm. and um when i started shooting i bought the c300 it was the first camera i ever bought and i just shot like a ton of dock stuff with it and it just works it's a great system and it's reliable and that's what you really need is like a camera you can trust I know the C300 works. I know the C300 Mark II, which is what I own now. I know it works. And it's not very expensive, um, relatively speaking. And I think you can't stress enough um, a camera that creates a great image that is also 100% like reliable. Never gone down on me ever. And I'm, I don't know if anyone else has that experience, but for me, it's like I know, I know what works, and and that's way more important with documentaries, you know, than it is with like narrative work. We're like, all right, we got to switch out the body or do whatever, go to the rental house, you know. Are you bringing any like lights, or are you kind of just keeping it very, very uh, bare boned? Um, we're still in the hypothetical yeah, first time filmmaker. Um, I think you can get if you're smart, you can do so much with practical light. Uh, almost all of uh, Dr. Ruth was shot practically. I don't think I maybe turned on a light like twice the entire time. Not out of my choice. I would have lit it if I could, but we were really small. We like intimacy was more important to us than like making it as pristine as possible. So, but I think working with natural light is, um, is totally a skill set that anyone should learn. And you can, you know, the, the kind of doing a lot with a little is, is a very real thing. Um, although I would say it'd be, it's great to have like a little LED dealy with you, maybe like one tungsten unit, something like that. Um, back in the day, I was always traveling around with like a joker, you know, yeah. like if I needed to just like bounce something to a ceiling just to get supplement, you know, to add to wherever the daylight is coming through the windows. But, um, you, you know, I think one unit. Think about what environment you're going into. Uh, are we doing mostly nighttime interiors? Are we outside? Are we in like kind of mixed lighting? And find the like one unit that's going to help everything. Because you're on, let's be honest, if you're small crew, you're not going to spend a lot of time, uh, and you're not going to have the resources to like finesse like four or five lights. You'll have the resources to turn a light on and maybe modify it a little bit, and and maybe that's it. You know. And how about you, Chrissy? Is there gear that you Yeah, find you know, I mean, to? similar to what he said, it's like I, you know, I bought the 5D when it first came out and that really changed everything. Because, I mean, before that, I was doing a lot of documentary projects on the EX1, which was like the first camera had a slightly bigger chip than like the other cameras, like the DVX100. And that and all that enabled you to do was like put the terrible white wall behind the person slightly out of focus and that was like a game changer then the 5d came and like amplified that by a thousand all of a sudden you could shoot a really beautiful image just showing up you know and and i feel like they took the canon 300 and, and you know and that's that was all of a sudden you didn't you could shoot like a 5d not quite as the little depth of field but you could just plug right into the sound because that was like the craziest thing about the 5d is that you're constantly worried about sound and 10 minute loads and the cart overheating and you know so that i think that they really kind of nailed it with the c300 and i also bought the 300 mark one and then of course now the mark two and and i have to say it's like for me between the um i really like the the skin tones of the cannons and i really love the the um 
they really hold their own when you can take the ISO, you know, really high and get very little noise and the and the colors stay the same and the dynamic range stays the same, which I think like no other camera really can do it as well for, you know, the 10, 15 grand that it costs. So so that means that I can walk into a place and instead of putting up a light, I can just, you know, take the ISO up to 1600 and immediately, you know, have another full stop. And I was shooting, yes, not yesterday, I guess the day before, and, um, you know, just watching the sun go down. And I was using natural light coming in a window and I had a lamp on in the back and like, you know, every 30 minutes I would just take up the ISO and, and turn down the lamp a bit, keep the ratio the same and like was able to really ride the, the light down. And, you know, for me, that's, that's the difference because, you know, I travel usually with one light and um, if you don't have to use it, it's it's great, you know. And, you know, there's actually, there's sometimes when, it depends on the project, right? I did this film with like um, second wave feminists and they're all in their 60s and 70 now and they would like to see a really big source near them. And so on that, we always had a really big source near them, but we also had the people and the place to do it. But when you're, if you're starting out and you're running gun, it's like, I'm, the first light I ever bought was like a Rifa light. It's a low, it's like a soft light. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an umbrella, you know, it's like an umbrella. You just pop it open and, it, and it's on. And I traveled with that alone because it looks like, it's just like a really lightweight, it looks like you're carrying a gun, really. Um, and you could just pop it up and turn it on and you have an immediately soft source. You can put a grid on it and all of a sudden the white wall behind you is not even lit. Mm. It's like it was magic for mm. like by yourself shooting. Um, so, you know, and actually I just took it last week too. And it's like, you can, there's like, I had it retrofitted to take screw in Kinoflow daylight bulbs. So then I could be a daylight nice. source too. And, um, and it's, so for me, if I, I mean, if I can show up and not use a light, it's great. And I was a gaffer for a long time before I started shooting. So when I started shooting docs for me were just a way to, um, like I, I understood light really well, but I didn't understand lenses and proximities and, and that's what I really wanted to focus on. So for me, if I could put it somewhere near a, a window it's like a much nicer source than i could bring by a person and, and um so it's really just about placing people you know for me um is a way so that's you know i think when you said if you're smart i think that's what he was saying it's like if you know how to place a person within the existing light like they'll be beautiful and you don't have to set up a light or if you can jump ahead and just like like for example ruth's apartment it took me one or two visits to figure this out but she has these perfect like muslin curtains ah. and so or like muslin-y curtains yeah, yeah. and um i used to not put them down and there was just like hard light blasting through the windows all the time and then i realized like oh man i just closed these and i had this massive mm. like you know like 16 foot by like six foot source um that's awesome and it looked amazing the fall yeah. off was incredible and like this so every time i come here i need to like get in before her close the curtains right and and then we're good and and that you know, I can't stress enough. Like, scouting is more important than almost like what light you have. Like, just knowing that the spaces right. where to put the people in the space and what the light's gonna be like when you're in there, you know, or how to supplement and change things. Yeah, it sounds like you know we were talking about pre-production and versus just like the run and gun aspect or rolling with the punches. And it seems like environment is such a key part of the whole documentary DP experience. Yeah. Um, in term I think a lot of time I spend, like when I push back against production, it's always like, you want to shoot this in this fucking room? Like, are you serious? <laughs> like, you know wait, what? We, like, wait, we can curse. Yeah. Hold on. That's, yeah, that's, no, oh, yeah. Yeah. I can okay. curse. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I love this potty can mouth I, can I re podcast. I would like to restate some sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to just go a whole bunch right now? Yeah. Just, 
Um, sure, yeah, but for like you know, it, with the um, yeah, like there's people don't think about it, and it's our job as cinematographers to be the ones who are like, oh yeah, like this is the space that you want this person to be in, you know, and you don't want them in this space. And people tend to uh, tend to prefer the thing that's most convenient, and the thing that's most convenient is obvious is often pretty ugly. So um, a lot of it is like negotiating. It's like we really need to get them in this space. Oh, we don't have time. Okay, well, when do we have time? When can we like mix it up? Because I think at the end of the day, you guys are not going to be happy if this really important moment looks like garbagey. Yeah, you know. So um, that's a big part of it too. It's like. It's, it's, and that's like the pre pro kind of conversations. And sometimes that conversation is the day before. Sometimes it's the day of. You know, they're like, oh, we just found this place to do the interview. I'm like, well, well, maybe can we find another place? Yeah. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah, it's all timing, right? Yeah. Really? It's like, yeah, we yeah. can do it with nothing easily, like at these times, you know? Right. If not, it's going to take more. That's where I always try to, like, having, having been a gaffer for a long time, it's like, I I learned how to say we can totally do it. Here's the amount of time, the amount of people I'd need to do it like this. Mm. Here's the amount of time and people I could do it like this. Mm -hmm. Like let's find out which works for all of us, you know, because it's really just time. Like I can do anything with any amount of time. Mm -hmm. Totally great. Well, just to wrap things up here, I'm gonna ask you guys. uh, I ask most of my guests this: um, if you have any like golden piece of advice for emerging or uh, people who want to be DPs um, for documentaries specifically, uh, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, you got this one. Ha <laughs> um, uh, My emerging, here's, here's my emerging advice is uh, go out and shoot. Mm. Go out and shoot and remove as much technology as you can. Like the more simplified you are and you're not worried about how the buttons work and, you know, just figure out all the buttons beforehand and just go out and start shooting and so you don't have to worry about the technology. Mm. That's great advice. I'm still trying to figure out this answer and this is not an uncommon question um, and I still haven't gotten a good one. Uh, what's been your favorite one so far? And then I'll, actually, you know, I'll give, give you, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you one, I'm going to give you what I think, I'm work, my working effort, yeah, my working effort. Absolutely. Right my, and, and I'm going to try and not make this corny because like my, basically mm-hmm. my advice is like break the rules. Let's break <laughs> That's basically my advice. Oh, that's the name of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking the rules with Davy Jakes. Oh, uh, so I so this is what I think. I think that the I think breaking the rules or better way to put it is like don't worry about what's technically correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I wasted a lot of time like trying to get the perfect like three point lighting and stuff when mm-hmm. I first started. I'm like no one th- does three point light. Like it's stupid. Like it's such a it's such a cliche. Like yes, it looks right, but it doesn't feel. <laughs> It doesn't have any emotion behind it. It doesn't have any energy. So, like, what I would stress more than anything is, like, assess the world that you're in and the story you're telling and don't worry about what is the right thing to do. Just do the thing that feels the most right in that environment, in that space. That was great. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. I just came up with that one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's, like, when you stress out too much about it. Yeah. No, they asked me about it uh, on camera just before, and I was like, I don't know. They took my question. I was like, work hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my wholly original question. Yeah. Yes, yeah. not a cliche question. Oh, also, <laughs> can, can we answer. call this segment the Yes Film School segment? Yeah, sure. All right, so, this, so, okay, this is a little break in No Film School. This is Yes Film School. I went to film school, and it was pretty good uh it connected me to a whole world of of people a community of people and that's really like 
the only thing I got out yeah. of it. I didn't really get a lot of technical knowledge that out of it. That seems to be the uh, um, case. Yeah, so I would I would say you have to find a community of people that will like support you because totally. I wouldn't be anywhere if I didn't have like this these people that would help me out and I'd help them out and it, you know is essential. Like yeah. the the kids I went to school with, I still work with today. Like I would say twenty five to fifty percent of the jobs, I still know someone from from my school. So. Um, you know, you don't have to go to film school, so no film school. That's cool. Oh, but that like, <laughs> but yes, film school. Also, if you want to do it, it's pretty cool. Maybe film school. Maybe, maybe film school. Film school. <laughs> we can change this to maybe. There's film no school. one way for anyone. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining. Thank us. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Um, thank you. And have a great festival. Thanks. You, you too. too, man. Cool. Cool. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. Go ahead and rate us on iTunes if that's your thing. You can listen to a new podcast every Monday. We have a ton coming out from Sundance over the next 10 weeks. And also read all about the art of filmmaking on nofilmschool.com. I'm John Fisco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And you can follow No Film School at No Film School. We'll see you next Monday.